Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. It's like Comic-Con for nerds. Isn't that just Comic-Con? Well, gravitonium distorts gravity fields within itself, causing an undulating, amorphous shape. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And this is the Nerdette Podcast. Today we bring you the story of a great lady nerd of history. Re, re, re. Yes, today we are celebrating Ada Lovelace. Okay, Greta, tell the nice nerds who Ada Lovelace is. For this, first, I want to yield the floor to an expert. She is amazing. And the the more I understand about the context that she was living in, the more I realize just how imaginative and how far ahead of her time she was. So that's Sue Charman Anderson. She's the founder of Ada Lovelace Day, which is today. Sue is a social technologist. Yeah, that's one of those job titles where I have no idea what that means. What does that mean? So pretty much she works with businesses and organizations to help them create social media strategies to grow their communities online. So it's pretty much a combination of psychology and technology. Now, when it comes to Ada Lovelace Day, Sue actually had the idea for it before she had even heard of Ada Lovelace. She just wanted to come up with a way to celebrate women in STEM fields. That's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, or maths, if you're British. I like how they say maths. And we'll get into why women in STEM fields definitely need a day to celebrate each other and the work that's been done by awesome lady nerds throughout history. But for now, let's just say... They are severely underrepresented still in most of these technical fields. So Sue is thinking of a way to get more women involved in these STEM fields. And she wanted to put a day around it. And she was talking to her friend. And her friend actually was the first person to mention Ada Lovelace to her. And Sue herself hadn't even heard of Ada Lovelace, which made me feel a little better about not having heard of her until last week. And she says the more she found out about Lovelace, the more she knew that it had to be Ada Lovelace Day. She was the first computer programmer. And she was just this really great figurehead, this really lovely person who was basically 100 years ahead of her time. And Sue really isn't kidding when she says that Ada was 100 years ahead of her time. Even today, which is almost 200 years after Ada was born, this stuff is still, like, pretty sophisticated. What did she do? So Ada was friends with this guy named Charles Babbage. He created designs for a machine called the analytical engine. And this was basically a mechanical computer. It had a lot of the uh, attributes that modern computers have, but it was made out of clockwork. It was a time machine? I gotta say, I love that idea, but I'm pretty sure Sue means like gears and stuff. So here's Babbage, right? And he's got all these ideas for this fancy machine. But remember, these are all just like theoretical sketches. There's no actual machine. Ada 
studied those designs and was in very close contact with Babbage. They met a lot. They talked a lot about the analytical engine. They were constantly exchanging letters. And she came to understand the machine as well as maybe even better than Babbage. Babbage's idea was that he could create this thing that would essentially automate a calculation. So it could replicate a series of steps that you would tell it to, but it could only perform that little task over and over. So like, hey, look, I made a machine and all it can do is tell me that 10 minus 2 equals 8. Right. And it could potentially do more complex equations than that, but it was still the same thing repeated. No new calculations. But Ada saw these plans and saw something totally different. What Ada saw was that the analytical engine, given the right algorithms, could calculate a result that had not been worked out by human head or hands first. Remember, we're still in 1800-something. So she had to understand enough about math and machines to know that you could build a machine that could do math on its own? Yes, even while math was still super hard and the machine didn't even exist. So that's why she's considered the grandmother of computer programming. Which means technically then Lord Byron would be the great-grandfather of computer programming. Wait, why are we talking about the poet I didn't like in high school? (laughs) Well, it turns out Ada was Lord Byron's daughter. And I didn't mention this until now because when I was looking up Ada, almost every bio online of her mentions her relationship to Lord Byron in like the first sentence about her. And I just felt like it would be better as more of an afternote. So even though Ada Lovelace was the grandmother of computer programming, way, way ahead of her time, and even though the word computer used to mean the job of a woman who was sort of plugging and chugging tubes together in these giant old series of tubes, computer machines. And this is like literally a series of tubes, which I love. Right. No internet, but just there's a lot of tubes and plugging things into other things to make these giant room-sized computers work. That was a woman's job. Even though females were there at the birth of these technologies, get this, Greta, Only 12% of undergraduate computer science majors in the U.S. are women. 12%? 12%. Less than one in five computer science majors in colleges are ladies. What is the deal? Wow, that's really bad. So you kind of looked into this, right? Right. And I like to think that some of the reporting I did on this almost a year ago now was a bit of my nerdette origin story. Seeing how stark these numbers are about how few women are in STEM fields really made me think that awareness is part of the problem. This isn't some weird problem with colleges either. It's not like the 12% problem that exists in colleges is the fault of universities. It starts way before that. As evidence of this, let's hear from Amy Lucido, who graduated last year from Brown with a degree in computer science, but she did not go willingly into computer science classes as a teenage girl. The very first day of school, they asked you to rank all the classes. And I had put computer science last because I had no interest in computer science, but I ended up getting stuck in it anyway. And it turned out I actually was quite good at it, which I was really surprised about because I was not expecting that at all. And at the very end of the quarter, I tried to make Zelda in a week in the language that we were learning, which was made for kids. So clearly it didn't go very well, but it kind of whet my appetite for computer science. So she kept taking computer science classes. She ended up in AP computer science class. She went to Brown. She got internships at Google and Facebook. And working at Facebook for the summer was the first time she really felt this gender gap. 
I was friends with, like, I think maybe two girls from Facebook who were engineers and, like, maybe 30 or 40 guys. And out of the, I think, 300 or 400 engineering interns, I think maybe 30 were women. It was a very, very small percentage. And Facebook's very supportive of women. Cheryl Sandberg even had a barbecue for the women interns at her house. So, like, there is a lot of support for women. But for the first time, I really noticed that it is an issue. And for the first time, I started to, like, really miss women, which I'd never experienced before because I was always around enough women, so I didn't actually feel it. There's a whole body of research that one of the reasons women who go into STEM fields end up leaving them is this sense of isolation, of just being sort of outnumbered. We see that women are more likely than men to leave the major for a few reasons. One is that they have fewer supportive student-student relationships. So the guys in the class may just naturally form study groups and so on, but the girls are going to stand out as different and isolated. Leisha Barker has done some of this research at the National Center for Women in IT, and she's a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. But it's not just the problem that women are leaving STEM fields. Like we said, most of them aren't getting there in the first place. 12% of all computer science students are females right now. I'm not talking about graduation rates. I'm just talking about the students who are in the programs right now. I mean, that's a pretty stunning number. Is that one of the most gendered majors then? Are there any others that are that divided? There are three others that are very low. And those are mechanical engineering, computer engineering, and electrical engineering. So I was an English major in college. Does this mean I'm part of the problem, Tricia? Yes, you're part of the problem. I'm part of the problem. <laughs> but but Christiane Corbett says it's okay. It's not really our fault. She's the author of a 2010 study called Why So Few? Women in Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. There's this really interesting research out of Harvard University, and it's about implicit bias. And you can actually go online and take these tests to see if you have this implicit bias. What it does is it evaluates if a person's brain more readily associates math and science with boys and men than with girls and women. And so even among people you know, like myself, who are committed to getting women into science and engineering. I actually have a background in engineering. I worked as an engineer for many years. I still have a bias that men, my brain more readily associates men with math and science than women. And so, I mean, it has to do with the fact that that's what we see most of the time. Your brain, you know, adapts to what you see. And what you see is that there are more men in computer programming and and engineering. And so we all naturally think of that as sort of a more of a masculine field. So then that affects how you, the potential you see in other people and even yourself, it's not as natural a fit when you have this implicit bias, you know, that associates one gender with a particular area. So is it really that big of a problem that women aren't in these fields? Like, we can still use computers, can't we? I mean, partly it's about the fact that computer science, software development, programming, these are all fields that pay well, that offer you job security, and are industries that are growing in our new economy. But it's not just about the jobs we're doing. It's about the technology we're able to consume as an end result. I think it matters because women make up half the population. And so we don't even know what it would be like if women made up half of the programmers. But, you know, the people who are at the design table and doing computer programming are the people who are determining what kind of products we have, the direction of technology. So when women aren't there doing the programming, doing the designing, their priorities are not being given priority. So I think it has a big effect. I think if we want our technology to represent our society, then we need to have programmers, engineers, computer scientists in proportion to the number of men and women in our society. 
when you really think about it, it's overwhelming to think of the extent to which we're just like not even being involved in this conversation right now. But there are a lot of people working really hard to turn this around. I have hope. Where's the hope? The hope was in a room full of teenage girls who were learning to code at Chicago Tech Academy. Is it with the youths? Yes, I met with the youths. These are teenage girls from around Chicago who are at a charter school where computer science is a part of the curriculum. Everybody takes computer science classes. There's advanced classes for students who show an aptitude and an interest. But in the same way that other schools don't let you leave without a base knowledge of certain other types of math and science, computer science is right in there. And this is pretty unique for a high school. So far, I have created a couple apps. I learned a lot about coding. I learned some Ruby codes. And we learn HTML, CSS. And I take a class downtown on Clark. It's called MobileU, and they're teaching us how to make apps. Uh, I start getting interested in this stuff during grammar school. When I used to be into computers, I used to take apart computers and put in uh, the parts inside the CPU. Last year when I was a freshman, we had to make our own um, page website. Uh, we use HTML and we learned how to like connect our CSS to our HTML and we had to write different code for the different containers like on the website, the header, the um, section, the article and everything and we learned how to design it. I'm building another one now this year. Mine is about candy. <laughs> And some of these young women had really specific plans about how they wanted to use their coding skills. When I get in college, I want to major in technology and I want to do a minor in fashion. So I'm hoping to incorporate those together. Basically build things that will help fashion designers like design their clothes online, like rather than drawing it out and like just some type of advanced technology for fashion designers. I want to work in like forensic science and do something like that is in the justice field that has to do with um, technology and learning like about the human body and all that. Um, I really think it's cool like learning how to do different websites because they said things that we're doing now in high school, some people in college not even doing yet. So I think that's very awesome. And I would like to do more creating websites because in the future I would like to create my own website. Well, when I um grow up, I want to open my own restaurant because when I go to college, I want to major in culinary and I want to create a restaurant that incorporates a lot of technologies, like something different than other restaurants. It really felt like they had an answer for everything. But when I asked them if they knew that they were going to be faced with this giant gender gap if they kept studying computer science in college, they gave me these really blank stares and like beautiful blank stares because they just it had never occurred to them in the school where they're in classes with teenage girls and teenage boys who are all learning to code. And it's about a 50 50 split. They had no concept of the fact that they would be so outnumbered when they went to college, because why wouldn't girls code? I love that so much because it means that we really are able to kind of break the chain. You know, if they don't even think it's an issue, then it doesn't have to be. And I just love that. So these young women really have no qualms about setting their sights on taking over the tech world. Like this one girl who's pretty sure she's going to make the next Facebook. Well, what we're doing right now is we're getting more in depth on how to create websites. And what I was hoping to do in the future is create like a popular social website, just like Mark Zuckerberg did. Because like he makes a lot of money and, you know, I want to have a successful life like he does. So that's what I'm hoping this school will get me to. Cocktails before homework? 
Yes, our booze nerd Rebecca Polson has an Ada-inspired drink recipe for us today, and it's got a really good name. Oh, yeah? Hanky Panky. Oh. <laughs> In honor of Ada Lovelace Byron, we're going to make a cocktail by another groundbreaking Ada. Ada Coleman, who was the first lady bartender at the American Bar in London's Savoy Hotel in the early 1900s. Ada served the likes of Mark Twain, Charlie Chaplin, and Marlena Dietrich, and today we're making the Hanky Panky, which she developed for the British stage actor Charles Hawtrey. The Hanky Panky is a variation on the original gin martini, which was made with sweet vermouth, and you don't really see it around anymore. Ada's invention adds a little Fernet Branca, which is an Italian Amaro that adds kind of a minty herbal kick. So what you're going to do is you're going to measure an ounce and a half of sweet vermouth and an ounce and a half of gin into your mixing glass. One of the things I really like about this drink is that it really showcases your ingredients and a hanky-panky can be very different depending on which gin and which vermouth you choose. So if I want something really robust and spicy, I'll reach for Beefeater and Carpano Antica. But if I'm in the mood for something that's a little more smooth and delicate, I might go for like Plymouth and Cokie Torino. And as for the Fernet, the original recipe calls for two dashes, which comes out to about an eighth of an ounce. And it's a really great place to start, especially if you're not accustomed to drinking Amari. But if you're like me and you really like cocktails that kind of taste like dirty mint, uh, you might want to try a little bit more. I usually find myself pouring a heavy quarter, which is really closer to a third. And at that point, you just add ice to your mixing glass, stir it until it's chilled. And then you're going to serve it in a coupe, garnished with an orange twist. Thanks to our booze nerd, Rebecca Polson, you can see the recipe and a photo of that old-timey bartender, Ada Coleman, at nerdatpodcast.com. Also at nerdatpodcast.com, you'll find a list of Ada Lovelace-inspired events happening all over the world today. Yes, there is a lot going on. Sue told us there are a lot of really cool events taking place all over the world. One that sounds really fun is in London. And the way she put it, it's a nerd cabaret, oh. which just sounds really awesome to me. I don't need to tell you any more than that because it's just it's exactly what you think it is. It's awesome. One of the big pushes as a part of Ada Lovelace Day is a big Wikipedia edit-a-thon. So female scientists throughout history and those working currently tend to maybe not have the most fleshed out Wikipedia pages that talk about their work and their lives because maybe they don't get written about as much as some of the male scientists of history and the present. So Ada Lovelace Day is a time to combat that and go in and add accurate, interesting information about all your favorite lady nerds of history. So what's really cool about this is it's kind of doubling down on this gender gap notion because not only then are you encouraging more access to information about women in these fields, but also if you are a woman entering things into Wikipedia, you're doing some programming of yourself. So it's super cool. Time now for homework. Homework time. And Greta, guess what? Did you get him? We got him. Mr. Malcolm Gladwell was kind enough to take just a few minutes to talk with Nerdette, and he offers up some very excellent homework. Is there some homework that you would like to give our Nerdette listeners? Well, yes. This is music to my ears as someone who's devoted to homework. 
go to a library, a good one, has to be a good one, university library, or just go online and order books by Richard Nisbet. Okay. He is a psychologist at the University of Michigan who's written maybe three or four of the most interesting books you'll ever read that have had an enormous impact on my way of looking at the world. The first one, for example, was called The Person and the Situation, which just is a this really incredibly elegant book, which just points out all the ways in which, without realizing it, we are influenced by what's going on around us. That a lot of what we think of as us is actually our situation, which is sort of obvious and sort of not. And until you read it, you don't realize what a big deal your situation is um, or how kind of deluded we are about why we behave the way we do. Um, and then he wrote a book on, it, on intelligence, intelligence and how to get it, which is fantastic. How wrote, to get it. I like that idea. Yeah. That it's out there. Go get it. That's exactly one of his big themes is that a lot of what we think of is kind of baked into us. It's not baked into us. It's out there to get. So, yeah, I would I would just root around with Richard Nisbet for a couple of weeks and you'll emerge a happier person. Fantastic. Are there things like that that you return to every few years, novels, films, things that you kind of go back to because they have a place for you in inspiring you? Or I think it might have been David Sedaris who once said sometimes he'll write a sentence he really loves just to see how it feels to yeah. write a sentence that good from another author's work. Yeah. I reread Janet Malcolm books because she's sort of the gold standard about how to write nonfiction. And to remind myself, the thing that's really wonderful about her writing is her patience. So she requires you to wait at least halfway through the book for the good stuff to start. So she puts every, she builds her foundation. And foundations are really boring, right? They're not interesting. But it's gripping because you know something's gonna happen. It's this sort of, this fabulous suspense that builds slowly as she puts everything in place calmly and methodically. And I, I think that too many writers are, well, it's hard to do what she does because you have to have an incredible amount of confidence that your reader will stay with you. But I think she's a reminder that why are we so, why do we lack confidence about our readers? Writers should have more patience. Not everything has to pay off in the first three pages. Especially they've already bought the book, right? They've already bought the book. They're, <laughs> they're in so deep. <laughs> they're. So your new book, just yesterday I was watching you talk a little about David and Goliath in the story. Mm. Turns out I had it all wrong, too. I thought the moral of David and Goliath was brains are better than brawn. Yeah. But maybe that's not quite it or maybe a little bit it. It's a little bit it. It's just a more, you know, it's not that the original understanding of David and Goliath's story wrong is a slightly overheated way of saying it. The story is just a lot more complicated than we've read it as. David's big thing is he breaks the rules. Of course, he brings a sling to a sword fight. But once he's done that, he's no longer this underdog. The sling in his hands is an exceedingly dangerous weapon, one of the most devastating weapons of ancient times. He's brought superior technology to bear on his fight with Goliath. Um, and then Goliath, I don't know why I should give away the secret, but there is a little secret in the beginning of my book about Goliath, which makes you realize, oh, giants are not what they seem as well. And we have been reminded, have we not, in the world over the last uh, several decades about how giants are not what they seem. Um, so it's a very, the biblical story is when you investigate its true meaning is even more relevant and powerful. I think you might like our definition on our show. Uh, we think of nerd as a verb, not a noun. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and it reminds me of what you've said about genius, that it has to come with an extreme passion. Otherwise, yeah. nothing else matters. What are the things that maybe you're not known for, but that you are a nerd about? Uh, yeah. Things that you love from your childhood or that you can't get enough of? Uh, international track and field. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if I could recount to you the number of times I have like dropped everything in order to sign on to some incredibly obscure website in order that I can see the 5,000 meters being run at some track <laughs> meet in you know, Oslo at 3 in the morning. That's happened a lot. Um, and I, you know, I, the days I go to the library and start rooting around are among my happiest moments. When I just, we were talking about David and Goliath, there's all this f fabulous medical literature about Goliath in endocrinology journals, and it goes back like 50 years. So when I found that stuff from like 1960 in the Indiana Medical Journal, blah, 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 blah I cannot tell you how just ecstatic I was. So being a journalist is a bit like being a nerd for a living, really. Oh, I get paid to be a nerd. I'm a, <laughs> I am a, I'm a paid nerd. <laughs> Thanks to Malcolm Gladwell for taking the time to talk with us. And the other piece of homework we'll have to give you, although that was quite an extensive list, is to read his new book, David and Goliath. Another little piece of homework, should you choose to accept it, is to think about some of the lady nerds of history that you found particularly intriguing and you think we should be talking about. We want to make this kind of a regular part of Nerdette. So give us a call, 312-600-5638, and let us know who we should feature as a lady nerd of history. We asked if you guys had any Ada Lovelace stories, and this one is pretty awesome. Hi, I'm Saley's Exo, and I'm going to tell my story about computer programming. So when I was about six years old in 1981, um, we got an Atari 400 computer. My dad was an early computer science professor, so we had a lot of computery nerdy things early, you know, including modems you put the phone down onto, and they made loud squealy noises and everything like that. We also got this magazine called Compute Magazine, which a lot of people who were kids in the early 80s are familiar with. But they had um, all these computer programs in them that did random things like run characters around the screen in a horse race or do fake little adventure games and other sort of things like that in the basic programming language. And I, in my six-year-old glory, would sit around and type them all in religiously all the time. And um, eventually, I, you know, I started kind of understanding what was going on with them that I was typing in, and I would modify them, and that would ask questions like, your, what's your favorite color, and then would print red 17 times on the screen. So, yeah, I did that all the time. Something would flash. It was generally lots of questions, lots of questions that I would ask. And I thought they were really cool. They made no sense, but I was always very proud of myself. I did things like that on and off for years. As I got older, probably a little bit more made sense. And then eventually, despite an English degree, I became a computer programmer and developer. And I think that whole uh, early experience probably is what led to it. And even to add to that, now I have a three-year-old daughter whose name is Ada, at least partially named after Ada Lovelace and all of the cool things that she helped pave the way for. 
So that's my story. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So tell us about the other lady nerds who inspire you. 312-600-5638. Thanks to Amy Lucido, Leisha Barker, and the Girl Coders of Chicago Tech Academy. Also, Christian Corbett and Ada Lovelace Day founder Sue Charman Anderson. And thanks to Ada. BJ Lederman did not compose our theme. You're listening to Poddington Bear. You also heard a live recording of High Places from the Free Music Archive. Thanks for listening on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Throw some stars if you're feeling generous. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.